<laughs> what did what did you just do? Did um, you just uh, throw up gang sign? I know, dude. I just threw up my hand like I'm like, like I'm you were about to be like, yo, yo, yo. Yeah. Well, I was like in my head, I was because listeners, we've tried we've tried to think of like three intros. None of them have been good. Yeah, this I is called, the third. One I was just calling Liz an elf. This time I was like, why don't I say something about bored apes? And then I was like, you know what? Mm. I don't want to I don't want to talk about that. And me then neither. I but thinking about that made me do a thing with my hand where I'm like yeah, thrusting yeah, yeah. it towards Liz here. Stop it's, doing that. A lot of you, a lot of y'all don't realize that most of the time when we record, Liz is sitting on my shoulders like a, like she's my two year old son. Bored um, ape stance. Yeah. Here's <laughs> my thing. Wow. Oh, great. Brace texted me a while back to say this person looks like a bored ape. About and someone. I, yeah, about someone. Sent me yeah. a photo. They absolutely looked like a bored ape. Yeah, I, I want I want to be clear on that story. I told Liz. I said I, I texted Liz. I feel really bad about saying yeah. this, <laughs> and I, I'm going to delete the message after I send it to you because I feel guilty. But does this this person looks like a bored ape? And I sent I sent Liz the picture of the person. Yeah, and I sent look a bo- like you know they look like a bored ape, and then I deleted my shit. But that is first of all, why are you talking in bored ape voice? Second of all. You know it deletes only on your end. I still have the message. I don't, but I don't want to see an evidence of my being mean like that. That just, but th- here's I mean, I could the, text it to you. Here, don't do that. But here's the thing, baby doll. Once I saw my first board ape, once I, because you know all my money. Now you see him everywhere. I see him everywhere. Oh, Every it's like person playing on the cards street on the street. I'm like, oh my god! Like every, you know, the fucking glasses in They Live. He puts the glasses on. He yeah, sees yeah, that yeah. Everyone's a scary monster. Now I you put them on. I wear my regular spectacles. I walk down the street. Every single person of me is a bored ape. Planet of the bored apes. Booyakasha! Welcome to True and <laughs> You should bring that back. What, Ali G? Yeah, it's time, right? Wait, when did that come out? Uh, Is that a ni- mid-2000s or an early 2000s? Se- 78, came out in 1978. If it's a mid-2000s, we got a couple years for that to re- really hit back. Did you read that Mint Press News article about Sacha Baron Cohen? I did not, no, what happened? In this it? guy's a real <laughs> asshole. I knew, really? I, yeah, he's a he's not a good guy. What did he do? He just, I mean, th- what for instance, one guy he interviewed for, Br- I think Bruno, like mm. the his like character, which is I gotta say I've copied. It's just like I'm a European which gay guy. Okay, that's the one that was just like I'm a German homosexual. I, I mean, that Borat was kind of a- is the is Kazakhstan. Yes. Bruno, Bruno is German. Or from Austria the show, or something from the from the I show, but know. they made a oh, movie oh, too. I do. Re- oh, they did make a movie. But I don't they, know. he in, he goes to Palestine in, in emails just to I don't Palestine. Think Bruno should go to Palestine. No, well, he he emails this guy, or like his producers email this like just grocer who's a member of like Fatah, mm. like the political party, yeah. uh, 
and like set up an interview to talk about like the plight of the Palestinians. This guy's like, I've absolutely, obviously I'll do it. They meet at a hotel, they talk for several hours. And then in character, Bruno starts, I think it's Bruno. They start asking him like, oh, can you kidnap us? Like, uh, you know, are you a terrorist? All this stuff and talk about suicide bombings. And then they put what? the movie out and they say that the guy is, uh, I can't remember what they say. They say he's the head of some like, you know, Palestinian, um, you know, uh, guerrilla organization and that he's a terrorist and all this stuff. And he's just like a guy who owns a grocery store. Oh my God. Well, if I'm not mistaken, Sasha Vera Cohen is an Oxbridge guy. So there's your first clue. Not a good one. Yeah. Second of all, I don't like gotcha, like gotcha, gotcha shit, gotcha comedians, gotcha journalism, bad news. Yeah. Bad if you try- news, dude. If you try to get me, I'll blow a hole in your fucking head. Hello, everyone. I'm Liz. My name is Brace Locked and Loaded. We have with us here today producer Young Chomsky, uh, and the podcast is called True and On. Hello. We've got a special episode. Really yes, excited about this one. Uh, our Now what I like to say, our old friend, mm-hmm. rather than our new friend, our old friend, uh, Julie K. Brown is here, journalist. From the Miami Herald and author of Perversion of Justice, here to talk to us about the trial and the Epstein case. Yeah, uh, we are very excited about this interview and let's roll this fucking tape, baby. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main segment of the show. We have with us today journalist Julie K. Brown of the Miami Herald and author of Perversion of Justice, uh, joining us live from Florida. It's actually not live at all, but you know we are all live. Um, <laughs> Julie, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. It's so good to see you again. Good to see you guys, too. I feel like... We were all in like a little summer camp together or something, all of us in that in that courtroom. Summer camp kind of um, doesn't really cover it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> the kind of summer camp that your friends, more like a reform school summer yes. camp. <laughs> yes. Um, so how are you feeling just, uh, you know, before we, before we get kind of into the history here, uh, you know, you, you spent many years working on this store, on stories related to this. Uh, now the trial is for now, over and done with. Um, how are you feeling since then? Oh, I, you know, I'm tired. It's been a yeah. long slog. You know, I started this project in 2016. Uh, so it's just been, and it's been a hard slog. It's been sort of like you're pushing and pushing and pushing all the mm. time. And when you think you get a little bit of a success, then, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, this story, as they say in our business, in the news business, has legs. Well, this one has like a thousand legs, you know. <laughs> it's like spider's and, legs. Yeah. And <laughs> so it just never seems to end. And at some point you sort of get tired. And I think I am a little tired at this point, you know, after all these years. And, and you know, as I said, it just never ends. I'm always getting people calling me with more information, new information, asking mm you know, questions about, um, you know, just people that they know that were, that they suspect were involved in this, um, crime. So it just never ends. For our listeners who maybe weren't following your coverage through the trial, 
I kind of want to just like take a step back and say, what were some of your takeaways from the trial? Like, how did you feel about the way that it went? What did you feel? How did you feel about the government's case? How did you feel about Ghislaine's defense? I mean, I don't know. It's it's funny because we've had some time now to kind of like take away. I think, you know, I had some like knee jerk reactions and then because we were recording like every night, you were filing every night. And so you were kind of like had these quick takes, but it's almost like until the story had completed, although it hasn't and, you know, we'll continue going. It, it, it was kind of hard to take a step back and get a kind of full picture. And I'm wondering how you're feeling about the whole thing. Well, you know, I throughout the whole uh, trial, I kept feeling like something was missing. I mm-hmm. kept feeling like, you know, you're you're sort of, you know, when you read a story and they and you always have a question at the end that the writer mm-hmm. didn't answer, and I sort of felt like that throughout this trial that there were holes that were still out there, lingering questions. Because I tried to look at it as if. I was a member of the jury, even though obviously I know way more than the jury knew, but I tend to, having done this for so long, I tend to try to look uh, through the prism of of a juror. And in my mind, I felt that they were presenting, you know, little snippets of information that never really came together, um, I think, until the closing argument. Um, I think they did a good job putting it together at the closing, but up until that point, you know, I think a lot of us were scratching our heads, not understanding why they even put on some of the witnesses that they did, Mm. you know, Mm. a couple of the witnesses that the prosecutors put on helped the defense more than they helped their own case. So you had to wonder why did they even call that witness? And, And that happened, I think, um, too many times, quite frankly, yes, um, absolutely. To, to have a whole lot of confidence in uh, in the in the jury because you know the jury's only listening to this one witness say basically, um, Gielan Maxwell was a wonderful person, you know, and this is a <laughs> prosecution witness. So I felt throughout the trial that there were it, it, it just was not a linear, it was not a a, a, a a story with an arc, right. like a beginning, a middle, and an end. It was pieces here and pieces there, and you're relying on the jury to put it all together. Yeah, that that's something I really took away from it as well. Is that like, I, I mean, it's, it's, there were sudden like jarring, basically shifts in where the case was sort of being presented. Like, okay, well, we have you know victim one, and you know all this stuff sort of related to her, and then there's like a series of bureaucrats called about another victim. And it was, it was, I mean, I, I, I always try to look at it from the perspective of a juror. And frankly, if I was a juror, I would have been confused out of my mind at some of this mm. stuff. And certainly, I mean, a few of them were sleeping through basically the entire thing. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, they shouldn't have done that, but one can kind of understand because a lot of this, you know, you would, if you have no context, especially you wouldn't understand it all. Um, now I was wondering, and you know, this is this is sort of getting towards towards uh, the territory of your book. I mean, basically, since you've been covering this case, and before, you know, since the early two thousands or rather mid two thousands, um, the government and the FBI, actually, since even before then, considering they didn't follow up on any tips or anything, um, the government and the FBI have basically bungled a ton of aspects of this case. Um, do you view this like new sort of like? supposedly final or maybe you know penultimate prosecution of Ghislaine Maxwell as as uh rectifying that at all or do you do you think that like this is kind of in line and they're doing what they have to basically they're finally getting something kind of done and even then they're not doing it to basically the best of their abilities 
Yeah, I, I absolutely. These uh, women um, were betrayed by mm-hmm. so many people from the beginning of this story when it first happened in 2005 and people knew about it. You know, there were law enforcement that knew about it and prosecutors who knew about it and people all over Palm Beach probably knew about it. And, you know, nothing was done to really um, hold anyone accountable. And I think this, you know, decades later is sort of a, an, you know, an attempt to hold someone accountable, but yeah. it certainly is no excuse for what happened and how it was handled and bungled, as you said, in the past. I mean, it's just, you know, inexplicable how much they allowed uh, Epstein and other people, not just Maxwell, by the way, there were a mm-hmm. lot of people, he didn't do this uh, in a vacuum. He had an awful lot of people helping him besides Maxwell. So yeah, this is one little piece of a huge monster of a crime uh, that, that you know, they, they somewhat held her, you know, accountable. We hope they will anyway, and, and that everything, you know, she'll go to prison. Um, but, you know, that doesn't change how they really treated this case and treated yeah. these victims from the very beginning. Well, we should talk about that because your book, Perversion of Justice, really focuses on all of the kind of like your, you know, your process of tracking and trying to figure out how this whole thing basically got covered up. Because that's the thing that Brace and I always say is like, you know, you hear all these people during the trial, you would see those, those viral things on Twitter, you know, oh, it's a cover up. Oh, it's a cover up. And it's like, no, it has been a cover up. It's been a cover that's up right. for over a decade. Right. That's right. Um, and, and I, that's, it's such a good, your book is so good at, um, and, you know, and your story at, all of these inflection points, you know, where it's like you want to pull your hair out. You're like, how did this fucking happen over and over and over again? Um, so maybe, you know, for readers who or for listeners who, you know, aren't familiar with your story, like how did you come upon this case? Walk us through maybe the let's go go back to the, the very beginning yeah. <laughs> with your entree into this. Well, you know, I didn't discover, you know, I, contrary to what a lot of people like to subscribe to, I didn't break the Jeffrey Epstein story. This was mm-hmm. a story that was an old story. I sort of liken it to an unsolved uh, crime or murder where, you know, of course, everybody knows when someone's murdered and the police go out or the FBI and they do this big investigation, but they never really solve the murder. And, you know, along comes maybe a young detective on the squad. He decides to go out, and take the file out from the archives and starts dusting it off and starts putting it together and realizes something that maybe no one ever saw before. And that's kind of what I think happened that I did with this case. I, what I, you know, decided to do, I I wanted to do something on sex trafficking uh, in Florida. And I thought, you know, I I would do some research. And in my research, Jeffrey Epstein's name kept coming up. Mm. And the more I read about it, the more I thought, how does this happen? You know, Mm -hmm. how did he get away with molesting and raping and assaulting, you know, probably hundreds of girls and basically walk away with a slap on a wrist. How does mm-hmm. that happen? And so I sort of set out from the beginning to figure out how that would happen. And I quickly realized that the only way to do it 
was exactly like a cold case detective does it. I had to just look at every single little piece of paper. I had to go back to every person that was interviewed. Uh, you, you know, there were new, um, documents that had been filed over the years that I had to examine. So I just started from the very beginning and took it apart and tried to put it back together. And one of the things that I realized was that in all this time, the, the, biggest missing link in this story that really wasn't covered was the voice of the victims. Mm -hmm. You know, they were girls when this happened. So of course we didn't know who they were because their names were redacted. Um, So I had to find out first of all, who they all were. And that took quite some time, you know, to try to figure out who these girls were because now they're in their late twenties, early thirties. So that's how it started. And I didn't know at the time, I thought I was just going to do a reaction story to the fact that Alex Acosta, who was the uh, federal prosecutor who, who approved Jeffrey Epstein's slap on the wrist, um, was nominated by uh, Donald Trump to be labor secretary. And I thought, I was when I was going into it, I would probably just try to call the victims and get a reaction to the fact that this is the man that gave your predator, you know, basically a sweetheart deal, and now he's labor secretary. And I thought that's what the story would be, but as it turned out, it turned out to be a much bigger story. Had many of the victims been interviewed before? Um, I mean, obviously by the police, some of them by the police, but by reporters or anything like that. The only victim um, that I came in contact with who had technically been interviewed before was Virginia Giuffray, who went, yeah. went public um, a few, uh, like in 2011 uh, or so. But the key to what, the key to that was <laughs> the British um, media interviewed mm. her. And yes. all her interviews were essentially um, surrounding, uh, Prince Andrew, none of the stories that were written, even when she was speaking, had anything to do with all the other victims, how the criminal justice system failed, nothing to do with Alex Acosta, nothing to do with all the other people that sort of let Jeffrey Epstein slip through their fingers. There were so many, uh, angles to the story where, and the only thing her interview did do was shed light on the fact that, you know, she was alleging that she had been abused by uh, Prince Andrew. And as we know, that's just one of the people uh, mm-hmm. who have been implicated in this whole thing. So, you know, I think even though she had been interviewed before, there was so much more information um, that wasn't reported um by her and other victims about how they were treated by the system. Yeah. I I think that that has sort of been something you you can see throughout the timeline of this is that like a big focus has obviously been on the very big names that are connected to all of this. But another pretty crucial part of the story is the fact that there was basically an official cover-up of sweeping it under the rug and making it go away. You know, obviously this insane sweetheart deal. Um, and and really the justice uh, the justice system sort of implication in all of this in letting Jeffrey Epstein not only kind of get away with it but get away with it in this way that it's just you know infuriating. I mean, reading about the the deal that he got, um, you know, you you mentioned that he was uh, actually I think you mentioned the book. I don't know if we mentioned it so far on that show, but he, the the actual crime that he got busted for was solicitation of a it was a minor prostitute. 
Yeah, minor for prostitution. Solicitation of a minor for prostitution. So that's one minor uh-huh. for prostitution. So essentially they categorize this poor girl who, by the way, that was even a manipulation because the original case was a 14-year-old. That's the original victim that was reported was 14 years old. Yeah. And they manipulated even the charge itself in the end by attributing that minor to a 16-year-old, arbitrarily picking a 16-year-old who was a victim because by attributing that charge to a 16-year-old, it even gave Epstein more leeway yeah. because it's not as much of a crime in certain states. New Mexico, for example, it's not a crime to have sex with a 16-year-old because that's we the age of consent. Yeah. So it, it, even the charge itself was part of the cover-up. I mean, it was just cover-up after cover-up after yeah. cover-up. I remember Acosta's, uh, when he, when Trump brought him out in the Rose Garden when he was, you know, resigning and he gave his, like, tiny, his, like, one-line or two-line statement, um, yeah, right before he was resigning to the media, he basically, I would say that he gestured, as they like to say, he gestured toward the the idea that, Many, many more people at DOJ were aware of this deal that that it was it went above and below him. Like it was kind of he he basically said that you know it was all up DOJ that knew about this. My understanding is that really between the U.S. attorneys and the attorney general, there's like one person, one layer. And I'm wondering, you know, your I don't know. I mean, to speculate a little bit, it seems to me that that this thing went up much higher than just. Alex Costa, obviously. And yet very little attention has been paid to that. Well, I think they were very successful in masking or hiding exactly who pulled the trigger, so to speak. You know, um, a lot of people, myself included, has have invested a lot of time to try to figure out whether there was one particular person who sort of pressed that button and said, you're not going to do this. And I, I just come to the conclusion that it wasn't one person I think that it was a series of things that happened that led to that. And um, some of it was really, maybe even most of it was created by Epstein himself through his lawyers. Mm -hmm. I mean, they created this image of Epstein that basically the criminal justice system bought, you know, that he was some kind of a you know, CIA operative and, um, you know, so he, 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 he's CIA material. We can't touch him. I think all that was a smoke and mirror thing that was created by Epstein himself because sure, you know, you can't like people say to me sometimes or Twitter, I get things like, why aren't you exposing that he was CIA or Mossad and everything? Well, okay. Let me call the CIA right now and just ask them, Hey, give me your Jeffrey (laughs) Epstein file. You know, it's absolutely insane. These agencies are very, insular and Mm. they just don't tell you what they're doing, you know? And I I think if it is true, uh, which I'm skeptical that it was true, I I think that Jeffrey was just a master at making people think that he had all these people in in his pocket or that he he was with the CIA or that he, you know, he, he just, you know, he was just a mastermind at making people think that he was more important than he really was. It's interesting that so much of that could contribute to um, 
like I, I don't know. One of my big takeaways from the trial was just how much of a performance it all felt like, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it made me feel very unsettled. And so hearing that makes a lot of. I mean, it's just you know that that a kind of consummate performer could get away with that, and 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 kind of that the justice system would buy into it. It makes sense understanding how much of it seems to rely on. I don't know, like you say, a lot of smoke and mirrors, a lot of kind of people putting up, um, putting on costumes and putting on a big show and telling big tales and and that um, someone could get away with so many crimes in that way. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's sort of the way of the world right now with everything, yeah. you know, um, who would have thought that this all this stuff that happened under Trump was going to happen. And a lot of it is due to the public believes what they want to believe. You know, they turn on, you know, whatever they watch or listen to whatever they listen to and they just believe it. They don't do any critical um, thinking or critical analysis Mm -hmm. of their own. They just sort of, it almost confirms beliefs that they really have inside of them. And that's kind of what the nature of, you know, what's going on in, in our, country really right now. And, and that's what's really, I think, creating a, a, a crisis really in our country. Yeah. I mean, but believe, don't, don't even get me started on that. People <laughs> believe all sorts of insane shit. Right. <laughs> but, but, you know, you have people like Jeffrey Epstein who are really adept at playing into yeah. those weaknesses in our system and certainly in our criminal justice system. And he hired a slew of really um, brilliant lawyers that knew exactly what, you know, what to do mm-hmm. in order to, to, you know, for him to get, to get away with what he got away with. I mean, my take on it is if, if Epstein was working with intelligence agencies, I think by whatever was happening by 2005, long over, you know, I mean, they're, that's, they're not, if that was the case, then this wouldn't have even, he wouldn't have been arrested in, in the first place. I mean, it, it's, it's. Yeah. And also, I mean, I think if, if that was the case, we would have, I mean, it is now two decades later. I think we would have, somebody would have provided someone like me or, or another journalist with real concrete evidence of some sort. Something would have been leaked. Uh, to that. I think basically, I think what it was, was he probably claimed he had some information that could help law enforcement or the CIA or whoever, the FBI, and he claimed he could be a good asset to them. And they sort of said, okay, you know, we'll we'll use you as an asset, but I don't know whether that even ever happened. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think it would, and people sort of suggest he's like a, like blood in blood out, like agent of the CIA. I don't, I don't, I think it's, that's not, that's not how that operates even in any like historical sense. Um, with guys like this anyways. Um, I mean, one thing, so one thing just sort of about, um, about your investigation of of this, I mean, a ton of court documents, a ton of like legal stuff to just like, you know, I I mean, I think at one point you talk about in the book, like a thousand pages of just like police reports going through them over and over. I mean, when was it that you realized just the scale of this thing? Uh, I mean, you said that I think police had identified around 40 victims, then you identified a lot more. Um, I mean, when, 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 when did like the, the breadth of this really hit you? Well, when I started the project, of course, I asked for all the documents. I did the public records requests that we all do, you know, asking FOIA requests. And I knew I had to track down the victims. And the only way to find the victims, keep in mind, like I said, they were 
minors, so their names mm-hmm. weren't anywhere, was to read the documents because what happens, a lot of people don't maybe not, don't know this, but inevitably they forget to redact yes. a name. Yes. So the only way to do it was to start reading all the documents because all of a sudden, oh my God, there's a name, <laughs> you know, and you write <laughs> yeah. it down or there's a part of a name or there's a date of birth, you know, and I had this big spreadsheet. So I had certain people's first names, certain people's last names. Maybe I had a date of birth and I just kept filling in the blanks and it just kept the list just kept growing and growing and growing. And then as I was doing that, the second part of ma- what made me realize, wow, this is a this is a big story, was as I was trying to track down the women, you learn about who the women are. And mm-hmm. I found out that these women had had drug problems after this happened. A couple of them had died. Um, they had been subjected to domestic abuse. I mean, their stories all had this thread, almost yes. all of them, of how their lives were forever altered um, by what had happened to them. And that's, I'm getting chills thinking about it because I remember realizing as I'm doing this spreadsheet, I, I added a column of their criminal records. And there's like, arrests and, you know, or I would add a column of, you know, boyfriend shot himself in the head in front of her. Um, You know, there were, there was this thread of how their lives had spiraled in a bad Mm. way after this had happened to them. And that's when we really knew um, that, that there was more to this story because none of that had ever really been reported before. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that really, I, I mean, during the trial, Carolyn's testimony was just so, so powerful because up until that point, and for people like that, again, are not familiar with your reporting or haven't read your book or maybe aren't even familiar with the whole story outside the tabloid, Andrew, or, you know, just right. New York press stuff, they think this is all, you know, Lolita Express, Clinton jet setting around the world, you know, models, legs, actresses, what have you. But, you know, in Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, you know, hearing Carolyn's story was unbelievable. It was, we were in a whole different place in the trial. And I mean, your reporting centers around those girls. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It was hard for me to listen to Carolyn because I had heard mm -hmm. Carolyn's story, you know, quite a few times at that point, you know, from different women. And I go into detail in my book, I have whole chapters on on at least three of the women that I interviewed. And I go into great detail about their past and what they went through. And because I thought it was really important that people understand that this is what these predators go for. They, they, mm. they go after these particular kinds of victims who are already you know, suffering, who already have been abused, who have already been trafficked, or they're on the verge of homelessness. This is exactly what predators do. And um, as you mentioned, I, when I came and started this project, I saw what you saw, all these sensational stories about Prince Andrew and Bill Clinton and, and Trump and, you know, all that. And I thought, this is incredible. All, you know, nobody's really spoken to these victims. Nobody's covered this part of the story before. So in your book, you talk about visiting a, uh, a victim named Courtney in prison. Um, 
and and her story seems really similar to a lot of the victim story where she had a, a you know a really rough early life um you know there was possible sexual abuse uh i think single mother and then you know when she got a little older she needed some money and when epstein came into her life that seemed to like mark a turning point where this person could either have lived like kind of a normal life you know gotten themselves together uh, you know not necessarily consigned to this sort of uh you know kind of awful life later and then for you know because of her involvement with epstein or maybe you know possibly that helped it along she really has this like decline after that and like you said spirals um and that story just seems so common with a lot of these victims that epstein was this pretty like pivotal point not necessarily a turning point but a point that like consigned them mm-hmm. to live to live the rest of their lives on you know in a pretty rough way yeah you know um an important part of this story, which was not presented at all by the uh, prosecutors, which should have been, and and it's something that I, it is really, really important for people to understand, is not only did Epstein give them things, um, you know, material things like money and mm-hmm. gifts, but Epstein made them feel like he really cared about them. And these were girls who felt like nobody cared about them. So you have this man who has this demeanor with him, almost like a fatherly uh, person who says, I love you, basically. I'm going to be the one to take care of you. Let me see how you're doing in school. Let me see. Oh, I know your mother doesn't listen to you. You tell me what you want to do with your life. He took you know, sort of a fatherly kind of role with some of these women, probably many of them, girls. And to them, you know, there were young women that felt in love with him, that they wouldn't help the police at all because they said, I love him. I'm going to do whatever I, you know, and the prosecution didn't, um, didn't really do well with explaining that, I think, to the jury. And I think that that was critical, critical, to how he was able to manipulate these girls. I wonder if some of that has to do with the fact that they, you know, they had to pivot their their entire case to Ghislaine. And I kind of want to, I want to ask, you know, when you were investigating this case and going through everything, what was the process of you understanding who Ghislaine Maxwell was and like kind of coming to understand her role in this entire operation? She was sort of like the, a ghost in a way, I mm. think. Um, especially in the beginning, because I was just examining the Palm Beach case. And remember, uh, with a few exceptions, Carolyn being one of them, uh, because she was a Palm, I, I divide this up. And when I say Palm Beach girls, he had this little cottage industry, this mm-hmm. pyramid of girls yeah. in in Palm Beach, you know, who were in the high schools. And then he had other operations like in New York, in New Mexico. He had other gigs, so to speak, on Mm -hmm. how he would, like in New York, he used some of the art schools, you know, he had contacts uh, with, you know, the Guggenheim, you know, museum or whatever. He had the uh, Fashion Institute of Technology. But so there was this, my story uh, that I wrote for the Miami Herald was, really based on the Palm Beach girls. Yeah. And by the time that was in full swing, Maxwell was able to step out because 
it was almost like you start a virus and once the virus is spreading, you you can move away because you did your job. And that's basically, she wasn't a big player by the time, uh, you know, that happened. So she wasn't a huge part of my story. But of course, as the story sort of got more and more attention, uh, we started digging a little bit more and more into uh, Maxwell's role and you know, we, we knew we were striking a chord because we were getting calls from her lawyers, mm. uh, you know, and we had to be very careful because it was apparent that they were willing to sue us if we tried to implicate her in any way. So we had to be very um, careful and strategic in how we presented who she was. And of course, when she gets arrested, that kind of you know, we breathe a sigh of relief because, you know, now she's charged. So it makes it a little bit easier to report. But at the time, it was pretty difficult to to report a whole lot of what she had been doing because, one, she wasn't involved as much anymore. And, and two, she, you know, she had a very strong legal team uh, that were trying to prevent the, the media from reporting um, that she was in, you know, integral really to what he was doing. Yeah. She's done such a fantastic job, I think of sort of like putting a cloud over her and Epstein's whole relationship. You know, mm. we're, we're still unclear exactly on how and when they met. You know, I, I remember during the trial when the, those flight logs were shown that they had ridden on the plane together, you know, I think for four or five months earlier than the first photo of them together in 1991. So that was, that was like one of the biggest revelations from the trial really of new information because you know it's it's unclear on how they met just like it's unclear on like a lot of things like how Epstein got his money um right. and it's it's unclear exactly how and why they ended their relationship too and much of this case really um was about proving that they were in a romantic and not just business relationship together uh I, and it's it's so um sort of fascinating to me is that like you know these are these are people who you know. Ghislaine Maxwell is you know from obviously a very notorious family, used to being in the press and have these sort of curated public personas. And part of that public persona for someone is usually a curation of like the public presentation of their relationship. And I was I'm just sort of fascinated on how well they've been able to to mask that even even now you know decades on. Yeah, I mean I did a lot of research on her for my book. And, you know, the stories about them go all the way back to, you know, right after her father died mm -hmm. under, coincidentally, under uh, mysterious circumstances as well. Uh, and, it, you know, also the key, I think, also it, to realize is that Epstein was a lot like her father. Yes. You yeah. know, they were both Bengali kind of men who um, demanded loyalty and who controlled their partners and in in some ways even denigrated the, the women that they were with. Um, so, you know, she fell, her, her father was quite abusive toward her and she fell in with the same kind of man, essentially. Yep. Um, I think that Epstein um, really used her and she knew it. And that has to affect your psyche, you know, knowing that she's, you know, being used in the way that she was. And um, so she was using him, too. You know, she wanted that lifestyle. And that was her way to, 
you know, be able to continue to have, you know, the same kind of lifestyle she was accustomed to, the wealth, you know. So, you know, back to the non-prosecution, or back to the Florida a little bit, and the non-prosecution agreement. Um, you know, we've gone over this on the show, so I, th- I hope the listeners will be at least slightly familiar with it. But there are four names, I think specifically four names that are carved out, uh, you know, obviously also the unindicted co-conspirators, which is technically an infinite amount of names. Um, <laughs> but we have we have Sarah Kellen, Leslie Groff, Nadia Marchinkova, and Adriana Ross, who are sort of four of Epstein's um, girlfriend come assistant? I don't know, you know, this sort of nebulous position, the women of Epstein's world who were technically overage, although not for the entirety of the relationship in the case of Nadia. Um, you know, these women have so far, except for a, a flurry of publicity after Epstein's arrest and then occasional blips since then, most of these women have been pretty successful at kind of going underground and avoiding any sort of not only you know, public legal entanglements, but public media entanglements. Um, you know, do you think, do you think that these people, these women will be prosecuted? Do you think they've been talking to the you know law enforcement or they've made deals? I mean, obviously that's not that technically, we don't know that, but I mean, it, it's confusing because Sarah Kellen's name came up so often during the Glenn so Maxwell often. trial yeah. um, that, and there seems to be no public movement on any sort of um, arrest or indictment for her. Well, look how much they, in my mind anyway, how they struggled to prove this case against um, Maxwell. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a passage of a long amount of time um, and, you know, memories, uh, the victim's memories were, you know, definitely there were credibility problems that were raised by Maxwell's lawyers. I mean, this was an incredibly hard case uh, because you're trying you know, not Epstein, you're trying Maxwell. So, um, you know, and you, you don't have time on your side. You yeah. know, these were, these charges were specifically designed so that they could avoid, uh, the statute of limitations. So, you know, once you start looking at other people, you're going to face the same kind of limitations, the same kind of problems with, memories fading and and those kinds of issues. So you have to wonder how much the prosecution really wants to keep investing in this case in that way. I mean, and what will be served really, what kind of justice will be served by prosecuting um, Kellen or any of the other uh, women? I'm not saying they shouldn't be prosecuted, but I mean, what does justice really look like? Is that going to change? What's that going to change? I mean, you know, Kellen has, I mean, her life has been destroyed practically and um, probably the other women less so. Uh, But, you know, you have to just wonder how far do you go, you know, and and whether these charges are even going to stick if you invest all that time, given the fact that they had... um, you know, 20 years disadvantage already ahead of them. The real problem with this case was they didn't prosecute it to begin with. Right. I mean, that's really the huge travesty of this case. If they had done their job in the beginning, we wouldn't be sitting right now here talking about this. So, you know, to be honest with you, I think they should go after some of the people who let them off the hook um, in the criminal justice system. 
Um, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that it hasn't been fully um, uh, investigated exactly why he got off and who was responsible. I firmly believe that there was some kind of corruption involved in that. And I think that those people should be held accountable um, for letting him off the hook. And I think that's really what a lot of the journalism coverage that's happening right now is not uh, addressing. You know, we're still, again, once again, focus on every day I get phone calls from people. We want you to talk about Prince Andrew. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I just don't understand why, you know, no one is looking and saying, well, wait a minute, who in the FBI was supposed to hold him accountable? Right. How did the prosecutors um, land on the language, this incredible language of this non-prosecution Amazing. agreement? I mean, who made that language? How How does that happen? Somebody had to do it. There has to be a paper trail of mm-hmm. some sort, you know, uh, the investigation that they did do. Um, the IG yeah, report, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. on, on the case. I mean, I was just speaking to another um, well-regarded journalist about just journalism in general, and she happened to mention to me something like she always tells her investigative journalism journalists to pay attention to the footnotes in yeah. the report. Well, there's this footnote, tiny footnote in that IG report, or it's the office OPR report yeah. about this case where Acosta's emails for this time right. period when the deal was being negotiated are gone. Yes. Mysteriously I mean, deleted. How does that happen? <laughs> and it's a freaking footnote in the report. Right. Amazing. I know. Well, I guess there's no cloud backup on those. That that was actually so Liz and I were talking about that the other week. It's just incredible. Like, oh yeah, they're guess there's no backup on these. They're they're totally gone. I mean the Acosta- I say just ask the NSA. They've got a backup of everything. Exactly. 100% they do. I mean they 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 could get us, you know. Yeah, they yeah, yeah. could get everything they need to know about me, <laughs> but they can't get Alex Acosta's emails during the time that this deal was negotiated. Or for yeah. that matter, other people in the Justice Department who sure. obviously were talking to Epstein's lawyers. Yeah. Well, I mean, did, didn't did one of the assistant uh US attorneys in Acosta's office, went and worked, switched sides during the investigation. I mean, well, that, that that is something that no one ever talks about. Yeah. It, it's just mind-blowing to me. That was never investigated. How do you go from working for the U.S. Attorney's Office one day, and the very next day you're working for Jeffrey Epstein? Yeah. Essentially, I mean, that's... That's what happened. It's it's literally what I mean. That's it. And that's that's the most. Uh, I mean, things like that, I, which is litter. This investigation. I mean, are just like. Well, I mean, I guess it, in one sense, if you're rich and listening to this, which I assume most of our listeners are, you're like, well, this <laughs> breathing a sigh of relief because you're like, well, I can just buy an attorney <laughs> from from the prosecution. But you but, actually I mean, can. You literally can. I mean, and that guy is taking with him all of his connections, all of his knowledge, you know, everything and coming over to your side. I mean, the, the other thing too is, you know, I mean, Epstein hires this all-star team of lawyers, some of the most well-regarded Americans like Kenneth Starr and Alan Dershowitz (laughs) beloved by millions, uh, across the country. And, you know, he gets this incredible deal. Um, but clearly one of the people that could possibly be an unindicted co-conspirator is one of his own lawyers, Alan Dershowitz. And 
you know you talk about in your book dealing with him and you know, you were Oof. you were not you were not the first guest we've had on who's had uh, some <laughs> difficult dealings with Alan Dershowitz, uh, and he's he's a lawyer in a hundred percent of his life. It seems like because it, it you know he he offers to show you these documents. I mean, can you just tell that story real quick? Because it is it is a good insight well, and, into his and, and personality. And I'm not the only reporter he's done this to. I yeah. mean, he claimed you know from the get go, I have all these documents to prove. On without a doubt that Virginia Dufresne, who is the woman that has accused him of sexually abusing her um, under Epstein's direction, um, that she is a total liar. And I can prove it with these documents. So <laughs> the first time I have ever brought an editor to me with me to an interview, I bring my editor, Casey, to Mr. Dershowitz's apartment in Miami Beach uh, to look at this evidence he says he has. And I mean, we literally were there. I think I say the exact time in the book, but it was like five hours or something. It was an incredible amount of time. Uh, and ironically, when I went to look it up later, when I wrote the book, it was April Fool's Day. Oh, good Lord. Because <laughs> I was looking at my notes and yeah. piecing together. When did I do this interview? I'm like, oh, my God. I figured and he did that on purpose. Maybe. The classic lawyers. Yeah. It's an Maybe. obscure legal precept. But yeah, you actually, Maybe. if you show someone documents yeah. on April Fool's Day, you can That's show them whatever you want. That's the calendar's fingers crossed move. Yeah. <laughs> so he has all these calendars, which he... These are his calendars. So we're trying to diplomatically explain to him that we just can't take your word for it, that you were where you were. You could in every single day for the past, for the three-year period where Virginia claims she was abused for him, he can account for his time. But of course, he's the one that created the calendars. Yes, exactly. So, so what we said was, we're happy to, to, to look into this, which would have been a daunting, uh, especially for a smaller newspaper like the Herald. It wouldn't have been a big deal maybe for the New York Times to do this, but we were willing to take the three years on, and there were piles and piles and piles of paper that he put out. And he, and we said, we're willing to do this and try to verify this, you know? And um, so we want copies. No, we're not. I'm not going to give you copies. I'm like, well, we have to verify it. We have to authenticate what you're saying. Well, no, you could sit here right now and you can copy everything down. It would have taken us three weeks to do that. I mean, he would not give us the documents. And he's done the same thing to other journalists as well. Where And then afterwards, he, he basically goes public and says, Julie K. Brown refused to look at the documents that, that I had, or I told her I would give her all the proof, but she didn't want to even look at it, you know, and that's what he does, you know, yeah. and it's not true. It, we were happy to do that. It would have been quite a daunting, as I said, there were hundreds and hundreds. I mean, it was years worth of his calendar, but we would have to call, like if he said he had lunch, you know, on one of the days where Virginia said that this happened, we would have had to, you know, this is what journalists do. We confirm yeah. the information. We don't take your word for it. So he wouldn't let us do that. And, um, you know, that's just um, what 
you know, mm. he, he's, but he's able to do that and go on, especially TV news and say things like that. No one challenges him on it because yeah. they don't really understand that the spin that he puts on it. Well, again, talk about performers, right? I mean, that's like half of the job of what he does is just sk- like spinning these tall tales and saying, you know, this is the, you know, oh, well, she didn't want it, you know, she didn't want to verify. So what can I say? You know, I've got my story and putting on a big show. I mean, he's like a big actor, basically, for the news media, it feels like. Yeah. Yeah, and they eat it up, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you saw the controversy with the BBC. Incredible. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love the BBC being like, we didn't. We need to investigate internally how that happened. It's like, you know how it happened. Come I mean, on. he's been on all these things. Uh, BBC is not the only show that, that allows Dershowitz to do that. No. He's been all over network TV and, um, you know, and talk shows. And no, you know, they never call any, they never ask someone to go on and counterbalance what he's saying. They just let him talk and say his own spiel on things without ever challenging him. Yeah. I mean, and he is, I, I, again, like, I think, I think even just doing the, the, his little, you know, song and dance with showing you those documents and not letting you take them. That's so he can later say that on TV that, right. he, you know, he doesn't have any intention of actually anyone looking into this stuff. No. Yeah. Um, it's classic move. And, and I think he freaks a lot of people out. You know, I can't remember who it was, but someone was talking to me. It's like, you notice there's never been like a real Dershowitz biography. It's I because, said that. It, oh, I you said did. That, yes. I think I said that to you because I had that in my book. There's never, he is one of the most famous lawyers. Yes. Of all time, probably mm. in our country, at least. And nobody's ever written a biography yeah. or really a, a, a very much about him. Now, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the New Yorker reporter that did a profile of him right after it appeared right after my series, Carol, I want to say Brooker. Oh, I read that. I, I'm sorry. I f- can't remember her name because it was an excellent article. And he tortured her and, and the New Yorker over that story. I mean, he was like, a pit bull on every mm-hmm. little thing. Um, and that's what he does. He makes it so that it's impossible to write anything critical about him. Yeah. Well, Dershowitz, if you're listening to this, and I know you are a subscriber, um, we'll throw Julie the Wolves because you technically are our lawyer. no he is yeah i i am his his day i mean unfortunately i think it's probably going to come after he passes away but when it comes out about dershowitz it's going to come out and yeah yeah, it's i think i think there's probably a lot of people sitting on a lot of stuff but the man is the man loves his lawsuits what can you say i mean he's so he's you know he he is he is uh, you know has the sort of gift, the devilish gift of shamelessness. And so he's willing to sue anyone about anything, no matter how bad it looks for him. And, you know, he's, he's he's talking about advising Prince Andrew. There was an article that came out, I think in the, no, in the Sunday times about how he even possibly raised the issue of going Maxwell pardon to Trump, which he now denies that, I guess. Um, Obviously he did that. Yeah, clearly he did. I don't know well, why Ian Maxwell time, would lie. If you recall, when she was arrested, if you go back, he was saying all these statements um, such as, you know, she really, um, you know, deserves this or that. You know, it, it, he was very sympathetic yes. Yes. Of, of her plight, the fact that she's been charged. Because in his mind, he's been erroneously accused. So he was sort of 
putting himself in her shoes and and being very sympathetic to her. So it wouldn't have surprised me if he advocated for her in some way. I'm not saying he did, but it wouldn't surprise me if he did. Yeah. Well, we should talk about some of the news that came out with the trial since we've seen each other, which is the interviews given by Scotty David, juror number 50, and that possibly throwing the verdict into the trash. I don't know where I didn't know where I was going with that sentence, but (laughs) what, what, what did you think when you saw that interview come out? Because we read it and we went, oh, holy shit. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think everybody uh, felt that way. I, I, I think I'm not as hardcore about the fact that I think that this means she's, you know, it throws the whole yeah uh, it, it verdict out. I'm not as hardcore feeling that way. I, I, you know, I've covered tons of trials, yeah, in my years as a journalist, and you know, every juror brings in their own personal experiences to a trial. I mean, that's our system of justice. I mean, that's what our system is built on. And even if he did try to persuade people, that's what jurors do. I mean, that's what the process is. And uh, so that part didn't, of course, alarm me. But if he lied on the questionnaire, uh, which it appears that he possibly did, wasn't forthcoming about that. That's where the problem, uh, I think, would happen. And from what I understand, they would also, though, have to show that it was intentional that he right. lied about it. It can't be inadvertent um, that he lied about it. So if he has a good reason uh, that he maybe didn't check it, we don't know the way the, the question was posed, for example, Um you know, or or what he interpreted it to mean. Let's put it that way. Yeah, um, that's true. So, I I don't feel like it's hopeless. I'm I'm mm-hmm. sort of thinking that. Um, you know, I've covered plenty of trials where we got jury jurors to talk afterwards and say, well, you yeah. know. I convinced them because my mother-in-law was a victim of this, or you know, it it just you, it's impossible to get a jury mm-hmm. that isn't have someone impacted by a similar circumstance. Of course. Especially sexual, sexual assault? assault. Exactly. Yeah. you kidding yeah. me? Of course. Yeah. So I don't feel that it's so hopeless. I think, um, of course, uh, Maxwell's lawyers are very, very good, and they're going to milk this as far as they can go. They're getting paid an awful lot of money mm-hmm. uh, to do that. And um, we'll just have to wait and see if it's successful. But I don't feel – I didn't feel like – whoa, this is like the end of the whole trial has to be thrown out. I I didn't feel that way at all. I feel like it's sort of a lot, too much is being made out of it, I think, Mm. quite frankly. Uh, This is going to be years probably of fighting over this. uh, Appeals, yeah. And it'll go, you know, forever on, on, you know, through the criminal justice system. And she's still going to be in jail throughout that whole time. So, um I don't know. I just don't think of it as such a um, bigger deal, as big of a deal, I think, as other people do. Because, look, you know, Epstein got away with it completely, you know? Yeah. Uh, In the scheme of things, uh, this is such a small red herring, you know? Yeah. I mean, my my take on it is, is I'm like, brother, 
if you he possibly should have talked to a lawyer before talking to a journalist because I think he probably could have saved himself a lot of hassle and you know you don't want to be getting called back to court like three days after you just uh finished the trial um speaking specifically about the jury here because that is i mean it looks like they're delaying the sentencing now which i figured was going to happen and you know obviously he's he's retained counsel and probably going to be some questions there now the um Defense is saying, at least they they told the Daily Mail that there's three, possibly four jurors that you know a similar thing. I I I kind of waver whether it's actually going to be a big deal or not, depending on the last person I talk to who freaks me out the most. Um, but I you know I have a feeling that it's probably not going to get thrown out. But they are. It does look like the prosecution has offered to drop the perjury charges, which I'm very disappointed about. Uh, yeah, if the judge. Yeah. I know, because I, I I would love a perjury trial. Because yeah, I think lying should be illegal, even if you're not on the stand, um, yeah. or only to me. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, it just it seems like such a boneheaded move. I mean, there's a clip of him in the uh, in the Daily Mail, a video clip, which advice to those who might get interviewed out there: never do it on video. Uh, where the yeah. the the journalist is like, well, you know, it does say on the questionnaire, have you been sexually assaulted? And he's like. Okay, well, the blood is rushing to my face right now, but that's just because I didn't know that. And like, it's it's just a it's a it's a it's an awkward video to watch. Um, yeah. Well, we got to wrap up soon, Liz. Do you have any? Do you have any? Um, well, I'm curious, just like as like kind of like last thoughts, you know, how you feel about how you feel this this trial has kind of situated in the entire kind of you know your experience with this case. Like, do you know you kind of I think you kind of like intimated to it towards it earlier, but do you feel like just, you know, this is now a kind of punctuation mark on this whole story or that justice has been served in this case or that there's still more to kind of unravel or, you know, how does this trial kind of fit into the the entirety of this whole, I don't know, this whole I arc? Mean, I, I think I think about it um, because I have, you know, I still have relationships with some of these victims sure. and- I know how they feel. And, uh, you know, to them, this is just, you know, absolutely does not go far enough. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, yeah, it's a some semblance of justice, but, you know, there they, there's a lot more that w- went wrong here. You know, a lot more people were involved. And I agree with them. I don't think we should stop. And it's very disheartening to think that, um this case was, you know, I I don't want to really, uh, you know, knock the prosecutors. They had an awful, you know, they had a real challenge in prosecuting this case because it was from so long ago. Yeah. Uh, but I also think that it, it, they limited it on purpose. You know, they went, in my mind, a little bit too much out of their way to make sure that quote unquote, third parties weren't mentioned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, you know, they, they, you know, they kept certain documents under seal that I'm not sure why they even did that. Agreed. Um, You know, it it sows more distrust in our criminal justice system when you have a prosecution that they prosecute so narrowly to protect other people. And that's kind of what I feel like they did in this case. So, um, you know, yeah, this was a, a you know a good thing that she she 
you know, was convicted and um, that she isn't around. And that it also sent, really does send a powerful message to other people in other people who help uh, sex predators um, that, that, that you will be prosecuted. And, and that's also a, another pro to this. But the con, ag- again, is that, uh, you know, the real truth here has still not been told. Yeah. Well, what do you think that truth is? I think that there were a lot of people involved on, you know, both sides of the political aisle. It, it, mm-hmm. This is not, you know, uh, I say sexual assault doesn't discriminate based on your political beliefs. There was an awful lot of people on both sides who helped Epstein. And, Absolutely. Um, some of those names have been mentioned, you know, people, you know, uh, have been at other people have been accused, such as Les Wexner is one, mm-hmm. and there's been other big names like that that are out there. And, you know, those people, I think, should be questioned um, really aggressively and should be um, should be forced to explain themselves and explain what they did because, um, you know, they, they helped him, you know. And Absolutely. So that's a long answer, too. To the question, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I heard it sort of described as the trial as like, well, sort of the 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 these kind of pimps like Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine, you know, got arrested, but they have no Johns, so to speak. Right. Um, right. And that is, and that they are they are basically. I mean, most of the other names, the third party names brought up during the trial were brought up by the defense. Uh, I think kind of to confuse Itzhak Perlman for some reason. They loved bringing up Itzhak Perlman every two seconds. They're bringing this guy up. Um, who, who, funnily enough, I'm like, I don't think that guy was really up to anything. I think it was just kind of an old guy doddering around the plane. But, um, yeah, uh, my, my final question is what areas, I mean, you mentioned focusing on the justice department's role and sort of covering this up, but what other areas of sort of the entire Epstein sphere do you think that have gone um, not overlooked necessarily, but haven't been looked into enough? Well, as I said, I think the Johns, it's Mm -hmm. evident that there were these men that were involved. You don't have a sex trafficking operation unless you have the the Johns that were partaking in it. And, um, you know, I I think that, you know, people like Dershowitz, for example, are part of the reason why these victims aren't going to come forward and say who who these Johns were. Dershowitz has really uh, gone after um, Virginia. And I know for a fact, because I've had other women uh, victims contact me who say, I'm, there's no way I'm going public because I saw what Dershowitz did to Virginia, you know? So um, I think that, you know, some of these loud voices need to, you know, and when I say loud voices, I mean, someone like Dershowitz n- needs to, you know, people need to, call him into account for, for yeah. what he says sometimes and how he um, essentially silences some of these women, um, you know, who I'm not saying he was involved in at all. I'm just saying by, by behaving the way he does, he does a disservice to real victims, you know, and, you know, he says, you know, with under his breath sometimes, I know that there's a lot of victims of sexual assault. I'm not talking about them, but yeah, you are, yeah. you know, you are. You know, you're discounting and hurting other sexual assault victims and making them intimidated. Yeah. Well, 
Julie, thank you so much for joining you. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you again. Um, yeah. Well, maybe we'll see, see each other at the sentencing, don't, huh? Don't, oh, yeah. The sentencing. If you were about to say the Next retrial, year. if you were about Next to year. say the retrial, I was going to walk out the door right now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Sometime, sometime within the next year, we'll see you at the sentencing. Yeah. All right, guys. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Well, Liz, I, for one, am excited for the prospect of a new trial. The trial of Alan Dershowitz. Yes. Here, like, I got to tell you, if there's any young hotshot Clarence Darrow types out here. Mm. One, make sure you got the suit. Make sure you got the suit. Before you even apply to law school. Doesn't matter. Get the suit. There's a certain cut of suit you can get, which I don't Mm. know the name of, but I'm sure our producer does. He's giving me a very quizzical look right now, but I'm not going to address it. There's a certain cut of suit you get that I own that if you wear it, you don't even have to pass the bar. You could just go to court. They let you in. Say whatever you want. Mm. You're all good. I feel like Clarence Darrow would want his, it's like the pants pool a little bit at the ankle. You know, it's a bit of a baggier fit. Which? Yes. Much like Clarence Darrow types himself, on trend. I wear the uh, classic um, suit jacket, uh, you know, tie, little ascot, mm. or excuse me, not a, not a tie, an ascot, a pocket square, and then I do shorts. A lot oh, of guys, yeah, yeah keep them that, on their on their toes. It's a Cali look because I'm I'm up That's here. That's a classic NBA look. Oh yeah, is it really? They play in Draymond suits? Green got a lot of shit for I think he wore shorts to the ESPYS I believe. Oh yeah, because they, they make them wear suits. They make them wear suits with like a velvet. Uh, no, the ESPYS are an award show, so they all get flossy. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, he wore like a. Sh- uh, I I don't think it was Tom Brown, but it was in that kind of style, and it was like a short suit with a velvet slipper that he got clowned on real hard, as he should have been. Poor guy. Well, yeah. all right. Before we forget, we at we are we are um we're gonna tell you so you don't get mad at us. Uh, actually, you know what? Get mad at us. Not my fucking problem. Uh, there will be no episode next week. Yeah, we're taking a little much needed vacay because we just covered a trial and we tired. Yeah, um, <laughs> taking a little vacation, but we will be back soon. And we have a big project launching soon. Exactly. Keep that one under wraps. Yeah, because people. Oh no! Where's my episode? No. Hey, loser, we have an insane thing coming, so fuck you. Now I feel bad about saying that. Yeah, I did say that, but just, but, you know, hey, chill out. Don't yeah. worry about it. And we'll see you uh, real soon. My name is Liz. My name is Draymond Green. We are joined here <laughs> by producer Young Chomsky, and the podcast is called The Espies. <laughs> no, it's true, Anon. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeff, Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein.